Short rounds. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I remain your host, James Hauser. Hope you guys are ready for another short round. If you don't know what these are, think of them as mini episodes. Once again, all these short rounds are 30 minutes or less, so there are no breaks and no background music. And this will probably be the last time I say that, just because I assume you guys will know what these are going forward. Again, short rounds will be for topics or subjects that aren't big or long enough for their own episodes, but are just too darn interesting to be left out. These are like appetizers rather than the main course, but come on, everybody likes an appetizer, right? Our story today isn't about a battle. Not really. It's about what happens when the powers that be decide that their military leaders just aren't fighting hard enough and decide to make an example out of them. This story concerns the career, court-martial, and execution of Admiral John Bing, what one naval historian called the worst legalistic crime in the nation's annals, that is, the nation of Great Britain. Now, it's Britain, so they've definitely done worse stuff than this, but that shows you how some people view it. Did John Bing deserve to die? You be the judge. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. As always, this is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13. The language is clean. The content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website. So if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with a real person who doesn't deserve to be an unknown sailor. So let's get into it. So the year was 1756, and Britain and France were about to go to war again. The conflict that was about to pop off in 1756 is known today as the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War in America. Now, Seven Years' War was a big, long conflict, happened all over the world, including North America, South America, the Caribbean, Europe, Africa, India, the Philippines, yada yada yada. But I ain't talking about none of that stuff today, because this is a short round, not James talks about the Seven Years' War for eight hours, which is a very real danger. The war had started, really, in 1754 with skirmishes between Britain and France in America, including the young George Washington adventures and his ragtag Virginia militia. But war between the two powers was still technically undeclared. And a big reason for this is that Britain wasn't ready for war yet. The undeclared war in America was going very badly for Britain, and France looked like it was building up a force for the invasion of England. The Royal Navy was overstretched, and a lot of its ships were just not well-maintained or in good shape to be taken to war. It was at this moment that British intelligence learned that the French were prepping a second naval invasion force, second because the first one was in northern France to invade Britain, in the Mediterranean. There could be only one immediate target, Minorca. During a war with Spain several decades previously, Britain captured several important positions that provided strong Mediterranean bases for the Royal Navy. The most important of these was Gibraltar, on the tip of Spain and at the gateway to the Mediterranean. The second, also important, was the island of Minorca, one of the three Balearic islands in the middle of the western Mediterranean. The others are Ibiza and Mallorca. British officials worried that the French were preparing to seize Minorca in like a surprise attack, like a Pearl Harbor-style pre-declaration-of-war attack, 
before the declaration of war. But as long as the French seemed to be threatening to invade Britain, the Royal Navy didn't have many forces to spare. The British Prime Minister, the Duke of Newcastle, decided to send only 10 warships to the Mediterranean, under the command of Admiral John Byng, to ensure that Minorca was safe. John Byng was a very typical Royal Navy officer for his time. He wasn't a lot better or a lot worse than most of his peers. His father had been an admiral too, and John followed in his family's footsteps by joining up in 1718 when he was all of 13 years old. And from that point on, his career had been successful. By 1756, John Byng was vice admiral of the Blue and a member of parliament. Good solid career for a good solid officer. But when John Bing was given the task of sailing to the Mediterranean, he was shocked to discover what he had to work with. All of his ships were in dire need of repair. All of them leaked when two of them were taking on so much water that they had to be pumped out every so often on their voyage. His flagship was even missing its topmast. Thanks to budget cuts and governmental neglect over the last decade, none of the ships had a full crew roster. Bing got to work getting his little fleet together, but there was only so much he could do on short notice. He ordered last-minute emergency repairs and sent out press gangs into the cities of southern England to recruit anyone stupid, ignorant, or desperate enough to join the Royal Navy on the verge of war. When even this didn't fill the crew rosters, Bing had to use army soldiers instead of sailors on some of his ships. As he continued to prep, Bing received a final message from the Admiralty. It said that the French fleet was about to leave Toulon, pretty obviously destined for Minorca, and ordered him to leave now now. Basically, poor John Bing was being ordered to roll off to the sunny Mediterranean with a leaky, undermanned, out-of-practice naval squadron. So you can understand the man's anxiety. Here's what he said in a letter. With regard to the instructions I have received, I shall use every endeavor and means in my power to frustrate the designs of the enemy, if they should make an attempt on the island of Minorca, knowing the great importance of that island to the crown of Great Britain. And I shall think myself the most fortunate if I am so happy to succeed in this undertaking. He doesn't sound too confident, would you? Bing sailed well behind schedule, leaving Portsmouth on April 7, 1756. He was still short around 800 men, and his ships were probably held together by duct tape and rubber bands at this point. None of his captains had ever worked together, and they hadn't worked out battle plans or tactics in advance like they usually would. Bing's orders were vague and offered a lot of room for interpretation. The orders he received from Britain were vague. He was told to defeat the French fleet and safeguard Menorca, but he was also told to hunt down French merchant ships, protect British trade from pirates, seize French privateers, and probably pick up the dry cleaning. None of this was John Bing's fault, but it was now his problem. But the French were far ahead in their preparations, and even as Bing was on his way south to Gibraltar, they struck. On April 17, 1756, a French fleet landed around 15,000 troops on Menorca. They overran most of the island and put Fort St. Philip under siege. There were only 2,500 British soldiers in Fort St. Philip, and they were short of supplies and ammunition. If Menorca was going to be rescued, the British had to hurry. Bing learned that Menorca was under attack when he arrived in Gibraltar on May 2nd. He had hoped to get a chance to refit and resupply his ships at Gibraltar before running off to fight the French. 
but Gibraltar's dockyards were a confused mess, the local army commander was actively unhelpful, and his ships were still leaking like a Taco Bell burrito. Bing wrote a letter to the Admiralty explaining the situation, describing the condition of his fleet, and informing them that he was going to do what he could to try and save Menorca. Now, there are two ways to interpret this letter. One way is is to see it as Bing covering his butt, you know, like people have done throughout all of history and into the present day. I'm probably going to fail, but here are all the reasons why it's not my fault. Another way to look at it, of course, is as a good faith communique that was just laying out the truth. Unfortunately for John Bing, most people in London saw it the first way. Bing knew that waiting to refit and reman his fleet would doom Menorca's garrison, even though his fleet was really in no condition to go anywhere. So on May 8th, having gathered all the ships he could from Gibraltar and the rest of the Mediterranean, Bing sailed with 12 ships of the line and 7 frigates, all of them leaking like crazy. Bing's fleet arrived off Menorca on May 19, 1756, after a 600-mile journey. British scouts on top of the ships saw the Union Jacks still flying over Fort St. Philip, which meant that the island's garrison still held out. If Bing could get close enough, he could at least drop off some of his troops to reinforce the fort. But time had run out, because the French Navy had arrived. Twelve ships of the line and five frigates under the Admiral Roland Michel de la Galissonnière, I hope I pronounced that right, I probably didn't, Galissonnière, were sailing towards the British fleet. Bing was forced to pull away from Menorca, and the two squadrons prepared for battle. The next day, May 20th, 1756, the sun rose on the dueling navies. Bing's and Glissonier's fleets maneuvered around each other, trying to gain favorable wind for the attack. The French admiral knew that he didn't need to beat the British. He just needed to damage them or scare them off enough to let the French army finish the job of taking Menorca. Bing, on the other hand, was anxious to defeat the French so he could save Menorca, but he was also aware, very aware, that his ships were already in very bad shape and they were 600 miles from the nearest friendly port. Nevertheless, we're doing this thing. Bing ordered his ships to close in for battle. The Battle of Menorca began with Bing's ships trying to bear down on the French and force them into a decisive fight. Bing ordered his ships to steer in a diagonal line that would bring them into close contact with the French van. But his lack of prior battle planning came back to haunt him when several of his captains failed to comply and followed their rigid standard operating procedures instead. Bing took about 15 minutes to reorient his formation to sort out the confusion, but this pause allowed the French to gain some distance and prepare for combat. The battle turned into a confused mess, with smoke hanging over the sea as British and French ships dueled with musket and cannon fire from 300 yards or less. Visibility was hampered, command and control collapsed, several British ships even almost collided with each other in the smoke of the battle. By 5 p.m., the French were withdrawing to the west. Not a single ship was sunk on either side. But the British fleet was in complete disarray, and most of Bing's ships which weren't in great shape to start with, had suffered damage in the fight and were now totally unfit for action. On top of that, Bing had lost faith in most of the captains of his ships, who were all trying to pin the blame for the mess on everyone else. So what would they do now? Could they still save Menorca? One of Bing's captains said that they could still pursue the French, they could still continue the fight if they really wanted to. But Bing refused. 
He believed there was nothing more they could do today. Galissonier had done exactly what he needed to do. He had scared the British off. Bing's damaged squadron lingered off Menorca for four more days until he finally decided to hold a council of war with all his captains to decide what to do next. Should they try to fight the French again and relieve Menorca? Should they try to make a run for it and drop the army troops off before sailing back to Gibraltar? Bing's captains all agreed that they should withdraw to Gibraltar, and so did the army officers on board. They would have to leave the garrison of Fort St. Philip to its fate. It was just too risky to try this attack. By trying to make this decision through a council of war, Bing was pretty obviously trying to deflect responsibility for turning back. See, look, all my captains agreed, so that's what I did. But he was the commanding officer, and the decision was ultimately his. John Bing's fleet returned to Gibraltar on June 19th. He didn't know it, but the fallout had already begun. French reports of their victory at the Battle of Menorca had made their way back to England, and the government was panicking. The country was furious at the news of the defeat. Bing was burned in effigy, pamphlets were passed out decrying his cowardice. Government ministers began doing some butt-covering of their own. Since Bing was not around to give his version of events, government bureaucrats began to fabricate their own narrative. Because look, there were a horde of reasons, plenty of reasons for Bing's defeat, many of which had nothing to do with him and everything to do with the military conditions before the war began. The ships being out of service, lack of crewmen, lack of cooperation from the dockyard managers, lack of cooperation from the army, lack of money, unclear and confusing orders. Bing played his own part in the disaster by his hesitation and his reluctance to take risks, but there was plenty of blame to go around, and most of it would fall on the government and administration of the Navy. The ministers of Newcastle's government knew that they had to do their level best to make sure none of that blame fell on them. When news arrived on June 27th that Fort St. Philip had fallen and that Menorca was now in French hands, the public outrage became a tidal wave. Bing's letters arrived with his own version of events, adding fuel to the fire. But the London Gazette, a pro-government newspaper, printed and edited an amended version of this letter before releasing it. The, The amended version downplayed everyone else's failures and made Bing look like an incompetent coward. They edited his letter to make him look bad. So it was very clear what was happening. Bing was going to be the scapegoat for the government's failures. On July 26th, Bing returned to England and was immediately placed under arrest. He was to be court-martialed under the 12th Article of War. Here is what the 12th Article of War said. Every person in the fleet who through cowardice, negligence, or disaffection shall in time of action withdraw or keep back, or not come into the fight or engagement, or shall not do his utmost to take or destroy every ship which it shall be his duty to engage, and to assist and relieve all and every of his majesty's ships, or those of his allies which it shall be his duty to assist and relieve, every such person so offending and being convicted thereof by the sentence of a court-martial shall suffer death. So that was Bing's alleged crime. Failure to do his utmost through cowardice, negligence, or disaffection— and the punishment was death. Now the weird thing was, this death part, this was a new addition to the Articles of War. This had taken place in 1745 after 27-year-old Lieutenant Baker Phillips was court-martialed and shot by a firing squad for surrendering his ship. 
There was some controversy over the idea that much higher-ranking officers probably never would have suffered the same punishment, and that Baker was executed because he was too junior and wasn't well-connected enough to defend himself. So the Articles of War had been revised to mandate capital punishment in the case of any officer failing to do his utmost, so that even an admiral wouldn't be able to escape punishment if justice demanded it. So this change to the rules was originally intended to make things more equal, to show that even high-ranking officers were expected to do their best in combat. Unfortunately, it ended up being used in different ways, to make a scapegoat out of John Bing. Bing's court-martial began on December 28, 1756, in a political climate full of fear and anger. Fear because Britain had suffered defeats in Europe and America that year, and anger at Bing's alleged cowardice and lack of nerve. Newspapers, pamphlets, slander, and libel flooded the streets of London, blaming and criticizing and defending and insulting like a low-tech Facebook fight. It was the case of the year, maybe the decade. The court was under pressure to produce a guilty verdict, both from King George II and from Newcastle's government. Bing defended himself against the charges of cowardice and negligence. His movements had not been delayed any longer than necessary to repair and refit his fleet, and he had done his best with what he had. He had taken his fleet into battle, despite its poor condition, and no one could really claim personal cowardice on his part. That just hadn't happened. The French fleet was in better shape and was prepared for a fight, and Bing was unable to land troops safely at the fort. The prosecution's case, on the other hand, claimed that he should have pursued the French when they retreated. Bing replied that if he had, he could have lost his whole fleet since they were in such bad shape. If Bing's squadron had been sunk at Menorca, not only was Fort St. Philip doomed without a doubt, but Gibraltar itself, the whole Mediterranean, would have been exposed to French attack. He was right, but there was never any chance of anything other than a guilty verdict. Bing had very few political friends and too many political enemies. He was a convenient sacrifice for many government officials, even King George himself. After four weeks of deliberation, on January 27, 1757, the court-martial returned a verdict. Guilty. They concluded that Bing had displayed no personal cowardice, but found him responsible for failing to relieve Menorca. In short, Bing had not done his utmost and had violated the 12th Article of War. And the punishment was death. Because, look, look, the court couldn't reasonably find Bing guilty of cowardice. He just hadn't been a coward. There was no evidence of physical cowardice. They couldn't go too deep into the negligence part either because that would expose all the government's errors in addition to those of John Bing. Negligence is a, you know, it's a rock you don't want to lift up. You're not going to like what you see. So they had to settle for finding him guilty of making a bad call, making a mistake. Ain't that something? And the jury's out on whether that was even really a mistake. There are lots of good reasons for why Bing did what he did. But if we start executing people who make mistakes or make bad calls, bad calls that might not even really be bad calls, that's basically every military commander who has ever lived from the freckle-faced lieutenant on up to the general, the admiral, the president, the king, everyone. No one is innocent of error. But Bing didn't have to die. He had been found guilty of a crime whose only punishment was death, true. However, there was a way out of this. The court unanimously recommended, yes, he's guilty, 
but we recommend that he be granted royal mercy by King George II. And this was easily within the king's power. Most people expected it. And many admirals and ministers risked their careers and reputations to push for clemency in the case of John Bing. Even the British public, who had been howling for Bing's head months before, now swung in favor of a pardon because public opinion is fickle. Even the French general who had taken Menorca, even Bing's enemy, wrote to England in support of Bing's conduct, said, yeah, yeah, he was my enemy, but he did the right thing. But King George refused to pardon Admiral Bing. People spoke up, wrote letters, petitioned, objected in Parliament. Admiral John Forbes refused to sign Bing's death warrant, believing that it was illegal and immoral. The new Prime Minister, William Pitt, made his own very passionate personal appeal to King George II, but it was rejected. There were too many important men whose reputations were on the line, for whom Bing's death was necessary to deflect their own failures. He was a scapegoat for their sins. On March 14, 1757, John Bing was led out onto the quarterdeck of his flagship, the HMS Monarch. He was watched by every officer and man of the nearby fleet as he stood calm, composed, and ready for what awaited him. He stood on the quarterdeck before a firing squad of Marines, faced them down solemnly, knelt on a cushion. In a prearranged signal, he raised a white handkerchief and dropped it. The Marines pulled their triggers, and it was over. John Bing is buried in his family vault in South Hill, Bedfordshire. His epitaph reads as follows. To the perpetual disgrace of public justice, the Honorable John Bing Esquire, Admiral of the Blue, fell a martyr to political persecution, March 14th in the year 1757, when bravery and loyalty were insufficient securities for the life and honor of a naval officer. Three years later, in 1759, the French philosopher and author Voltaire published his novel Candide, a satirical work lampooning the politics, literature, and religious affairs of the time. Candida is one of the most important works of French literature, and it has given us a single phrase that describes the fate of poor John Bing. In the novel, when the main character Candida arrives in England, he is shocked to see an admiral being executed for not killing enough of the enemy. This, of course, was very obviously based on the well-known trial and execution of John Bing. Everyone knew about it. It was clear what Voltaire was referencing in this novel. So when Candida asks his friend why this has happened, the friend replies, In this country, it is good to kill an admiral from time to time to encourage the others. So that phrase, to encourage the others, is usually presented in its French form. I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. Pour encourager les autres. Basically, making an example out of someone. Imagine being John Bing, man, just doing your job to the the best you can for your entire life, and then your entire story becomes a byword for unjust persecution. More than that, it became virtually synonymous with British tyranny and scapegoating. It would pop up in the American Revolution as, you know, the British are tyrants. Remember what they did to poor John Bing? I imagine the man wanted to go down in history, but probably not like that. John Bing was the first and last British admiral to ever be executed for failing to do his utmost. 
22 years later, the 12th Article of War was amended to take out that section mandating capital punishment. As late as 2007, members of the Bing family were still petitioning the British government to issue a posthumous pardon for their ancestor, but they were still being turned down by the British Admiralty. Which, I mean, come on guys, what harm is it going to do now? It's, it's been almost 300 years. It's hard to say just how much of an effect Bing's death had on British military behavior after 1757, but at least from that point on. The officers of the Royal Navy became famous for a culture of aggressiveness, daring, and recklessness. No one could be blamed for breaking the rules if it was done in order to fight. You could argue that Bing had followed all the rules and been executed for not taking risks. They would be this standard in the Royal Navy. If you broke the rules, if you disobeyed orders in order to attack the enemy, aggressively pursue the enemy, you were almost virtually never going to be punished for it. This was the legacy that would carry the Royal Navy through the American Revolution and Napoleon and the World Wars all the way up to the Falklands War of 1982 and would help make it one of the best combat forces in world history. I wonder if knowing that, knowing that they might have had that effect, even a little bit, would have comforted John Bing and his family. No, no other admirals were ever executed. But after the death of poor John Bing, you have to wonder... They weren't always looking over their shoulder just a little bit whenever they made a decision to fight or not fight, wanting to make sure that, well, they did their utmost. Like it or not, I imagine that the officers and admirals of the Royal Navy were pretty darn encouraged. Thanks a bunch for listening to this short round. I I hope I managed to make an 18th century legal case interesting somehow. I appreciate your support and feedback as I continue to move along with my podcast. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it. If you don't like it, please tell your enemies about it. If you want to read some more about the Seven Years' War, just check out a bunch of my other ramblings, which I have plenty of. You can go to my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com, which is also where my sources and a bunch of pictures and context will be for this episode. If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect, so if you've got advice, I'd love to hear it. Again, thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to check in on Monday. Same time, same place, on Unknown Soldiers.